you know, because what are the fundamentals of Bitcoin? There's no cash flow. There, there's no earnings, right? So like the traditional value investor is like, what the hell is this thing? It's just a, a liquidity gauge. And then I would say, yeah, it is a liquidity gauge. Exactly. Uh, right. And it's just marginal buyers and marginal sellers. For, that's that's any asset. It just flows. Uh, and here we have an absolutely scarce thing. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by uh, Dylan LeClaire, who's a senior analyst at Bitcoin Magazine, and Will Clemente, who is the co-founder at Reflexivity Research. Fellas, welcome to the show. Michael, excited to, excited to chat. Uh, this is going to be a fun one. Thanks for having us on. I'm excited to see Dylan as well. Same, man. Uh, I'm excited to do this episode. You guys are two of the uh, sharpest minds in the space, but also what interests me about your guys' interests is there's kind of this intersection of everything that's going on in macro, but you also get very deep on the crypto and Bitcoin side of things. So I thought we could have a fun conversation, kind of doing a review of some of the big macro trends. And Will, I know you put out a big uh, report. We'll link it in the link it in the show notes here. But basically, just sum up what are some of the big macro trends in 2022? How do you see that uh, translating into 2023? And then we'll talk about like where and how that intersects with crypto, Bitcoin, all that sort of fun stuff. Uh, so maybe I can just, you know, I'll just open this up to, to the two of you. You could start from 10,000 feet. You know, if I had to ask you guys to describe, like, what were some of the big macro themes that we saw in 2022? How would you kind of describe the last year from that perspective? Sure. Yeah, I guess I can I can give it a rip first uh, and then turn it over to Will. Um, I think 2022, um, you know, if we're if we're looking back at a, you know, 10,000 foot view, um, it was obviously the fastest tightening cycle uh, in history and at least modern history. Um, if we're looking at it from a Bitcoin crypto specific lens, uh, it kind of coincided with uh this absolute uh, purge of of uh, both transparent and obfuscated leverage, right? We we kind of all knew that there was, you know, this uh, growing and expanding uh, leverage futures uh, derivatives market. Um, what what wasn't known going in, uh, or not wasn't known, but uh, what market participants found out uh, was that there was a whole bunch of hidden leverage that that wasn't transparent, whether that was in the form of, you know leveraged altcoin tokens like FTT or, you know, like Luna uh, that kind of added like $50 billion of market cap. Uh, and, and and while bonds and equities were, were, were selling off, Bitcoin was, you know, pumping from 30, 32K after the Ukraine invasion to four, like to 45, 48K, something like that. Right. So there was kind of that momentary period of like decoupling that was really just like funny money leverage. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I think the, the good news, the silver lining of like, Bitcoin being down 65% in 2022 is like, we purged a whole lot of leverage, you know, ASIC collateralized leverage, futures leverage, altcoin leverage, right? So like in terms of like the gross force selling, um, it's, it's you know, it's going to be real tough to see that replicate again in 2023. Um, marginal sellers can obviously persist if we go into an economic recession, but um, I think it's, it's a real healthy cleanse. Um, and this is something that Bitcoin does, like market cycle to market cycle. Um, you kind of see just, you know, once the tide goes out, uh, a lot of a lot of bodies wash ashore. And so, uh, you know, going into 2023, I don't think it, there's a return into, you know, an up only uh, everything bubble market again. Um, but the good news is, you know, the speculators, a lot of the leverage uh, and a lot of like the the hype and the stories that that people told um, have been kind of like, you know, that's, that's a lot been watched. So it's, so really the only people that are in the market today holding and buying are the people that like actually, uh, you know, for the most part, understand this thing, or at least, uh, you know, have a ton of conviction. So I think that's, that's where I get really excited going forward. Yeah. I think that Dylan hit on basically everything. I think the one thing that maybe you didn't touch on was Bitcoin miners. 
Um, you know, we've entered a you know second capitulatory period over the last few months. Uh, seen a tremendous amount of horse selling as we saw uh, over summer earlier this year. It's interesting. You know, we kind of entered this period in June where we saw a lot of horse selling for miners. We saw Core Scientific, for example, uh, sell about 170 million dollars of BTC. Uh, and then we saw a very large increase in hash rate, which was quite surprising given kind of the broader context of it just being such a bad time to get involved in mining unless you have, you know, just absolutely dirt cheap uh, energy costs. Uh, but nonetheless, we saw a slight rebound in hash rate. And then about a month ago, uh, according to an indicator called hash ribbons, we re-entered another minor capitulatory period. Uh, we've seen pretty ha uh, heavy selling, at least looking at some of the on-chain data that Dylan and I look at. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, over the last week, we've finally seen Kind of what we look at is the net position net position change, which is the 30-day change in the Bitcoin miners' holdings. Uh, that's finally flipped green. So I completely agree with Dylan's assessment that I think for the for the you know vast majority of the market, a lot of the forced selling has already taken place, at least for Bitcoin. Hmm. So for crypto overall, like if we had to rewind the clock, right, and take a look at the catalyst, this was sort of the first 2022 was sort of the first year for better or worse, largely worse. Right, where we found out that crypto was really trading based on the macro cycle. Right. So all of this sort of started with central banks tightening, right? They started to raise rates, which obviously hit risk assets. At the same time as rates went up, you know, liquidity flowed into the dollar, right? So the DXY kind of went on this uh huge bull run, which also killed risk assets. Uh and then we saw I think the greatest contraction in liquidity as measured by M2 supply in the past, you know, you go charts back to the 1700s, you know, back to basically the founding of America. So there were these sort of, there's this huge sort of macro overhang. I'd be curious to get your sense before we get like too into the weeds of everything going on in crypto. Like, do you see those trends continuing in 2023? Do you see some element of mean reversion? I'd like to get a sense uh, if we're heading into an environment of headwinds or tailwinds. I think the big question is, you know, in terms of the rate of velocity of rate hikes. I think that's that's in the past. I think the big question now is how long is the Fed going to hold rates, um, you know, at, at the terminal rate? And so, um, you know, I think we're looking at maybe potentially another, um, you know, 25 bips or maybe another, you know, second 25 bip raise after that. Um, but in terms of kind of the, you know, rate of increases Dylan talked about, you know, when you look at the velocity of rate hikes, this, you know, current tightening cycle is on par with uh, the highest that we've ever seen historically. Um, only kind of challenged by that of the 1980s. And so um, I think for, for a lot of market participants, it's it's kind of up in the air in terms of, you know, the Fed looking at their dot plot saying that they're going to hold rates, you know, at, at, at these levels for the end of the year. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the, you know, questions around, you know, are these rate hikes and, the, you know, the lacking effect of these rate hikes finally going to start to seek into the, you know, broader economy uh, over the next few months. I think that's kind of, uh, you know, something that, that we'll probably likely see, you know, heading into the next two quarters. Yeah, I kind of agree there. Um, you know, in terms of the strengthening dollar, uh, whether you know whether the the Dixie goes goes lower in the next day, week, month, um, I, I I don't see uh, the catalyst there for you know sustained dollar weakness uh, over a prolonged period of time. Like structurally, when I look at the dollar, like everybody, including myself, right? Like everybody talks about how bad of a situation the U.S. is in terms of a debt position, and you know, um, a lot of talk in. in in 2021 was like, you know, the Fed is trapped, right? They can't, they can't raise or meaningfully raise for a long period of time. And I somewhat agree there, even though uh, they have raised to, you know, uh, 400 bips, uh, you know, uh, we might get a terminal rate over 5%. Uh, higher for longer seems to be the trend. Uh, and, and surprisingly, like the thing that maybe surprised me the most uh, was once it was clear that, okay, inflation is absolutely ripping, it's not coming down. 
uh, and central banks around the globe are going to go from uber uh, dovish to uber hawkish. Um, my surprise was that, okay, things didn't, didn't break. And actually, you know, the economy, at least nominally, is, is pretty resilient for the moment. Uh, but when I, when I think of like, okay, what's the Dixie, right? It's a basket of the euro, the yen, the pound, right? Like, and, and if you tell me, um, like, and here I kind of agree with Brent Johnson, right? Who's, who, you know, has a different kind of uh, conclusion to the thesis of like, you know, he's not, he's not a Bitcoin bull uh, necessarily, but dollars and gold, right? Well, why? Because you're measuring dollars and gold against the Eurozone, which is, you know, there's, there's a lot of structural problems there. Debt burdens are worse. Demographics are worse. Uh, there's an, there's an energy shortage, uh, the same, same situation in the UK and same with the yen, right? Like, uh, the, the bank of Japan is, is embarking upon yield curve control. So, so like, I mean, I'm a dollar bull here. Um, I, I like, you know, have, have small short positions across, you know, a basket of those currencies. Um, but I think for risk assets, like that's, you know, potentially, uh, the, the 10 trillion, hundred trillion dollar question is like, what's a dollar short squeeze look like, you know, if, if we see a sustained period of time above 5%, right? This, this, this economy is going from say, you know, a deceleration to, do we see an outright contraction? Um, and I think that's, you know, that's what we potentially might see in 2023 or, or beyond, right? Uh, we just have this, this massive global dollar short position. Um, and if things start to slow down, if the music starts to stop, you know, this game of musical chairs, which is a, a debt-based uh, economy, right? Uh, then I think we might see uh, some, maybe, you know, potentially unforeseen uh, consequences in, in, the, in the sense of, you know, everything sells off dollar bids. Um, so I don't think that happens tomorrow or next week or maybe even necessarily this quarter or this year, right? But uh, structurally, nothing has changed in the sense of we have a massive debt problem and it's not just a, a domestic U.S. Uh, dollar problem. It's it's globally, right? And so, if the U.S. economy enters recession, then you know the world economy enters recession, and and then things start to get real, real interesting. So, I think this, you know, central banks, the Fed, the Fed being trapped is kind of like this mantra in twenty twenty one. I think I think it's still true, and I don't think they can have the Fed funds at five percent uh, for 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 like far too long. But I think they can do it for for a time, right? And ultimately, the result will be pain. So. So, uh, you know, I think we, we are in for a little bit more pain from a, from a general macro perspective. Um, we're, you know, we're starting to see the last parts of the, of the business cycle turn, like employment. Uh, I think that's probably the next leg to go. We've, we've seen it mostly in like white collar jobs so far. Uh, but I think that, you know, the housing and employment cycle are probably two of the things that turn next. Um, and I think, you know, that will have to be met eventually uh, with, with an easing cycle. Uh, but we're obviously, you know, don't want to put the, the cart before the horse. Yeah, I think I just just to you know add on top of that, I think also when you look at the Dixie, traditionally crypto is kind of traded with this almost direct inverse correlation with the Dixie. Um, mm-hmm. I think as you have central banks you know around the world outside of the Fed uh, continuing to raise rates, and as you just mentioned, the Fed's kind of surpassed their you know peak velocity of, of rate hikes. Uh, I think you know just because potentially you know on a relative basis the dollar's you know weakening in this basket of other currencies, you know maybe on a short to medium term basis. I don't necessarily think that that means that, you know, it's bullish for risk assets such as crypto, just because it's not the dollar weakening as much as it's just, you know, other central banks around the world, you know, tightening to catch up to the Fed. Um, And I think to Dylan's point, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head. I think also one thing I would watch out for um, that our macro guy uh, has has kind of been, uh, you know, drilling into drilling into our clients' uh, brains is, you know, keep an eye on inflation in in Japan. I think that could be kind of the final straw to, to break the back of the horse. You know, if you finally have... Um, you know, Japan stepping off their yield curve control uh, because inflation gets out of hand in 2023. I think that's a potential catalyst to watch out for for the remainder of the year.
Mm. And the, just to plug your, your macro guy there, well, that's a guy named Felix Joven. He actually did an interview with my colleague Jack Farley on Forward Guidance, which is an interview highly worth checking out. Would you, would you actually mind describing, uh, you know, without getting too much in the weeds of what's going on with the, the BOJ, why, why is that such an important thing to watch? Why is uh, inflation in Japan potentially a, sort of a black swan or, you know, potential disruptor? I would just say because the Bank of Japan is really the only central bank that's still kind of holding on to this previous monetary regime. And so I would say, mm. you know, if, if, you know, inflation becomes entrenched into the you know, Japanese economy, that could become an issue for you know, the, the final, you know, like central bank that's holding on to, you know, easy monetary policy. And I think that could be potentially something that creates the final leg down that people like Dylan have been talking about for a while in macro. Yeah, I've got one more sort of macro line of questioning. Oh, sorry, Dylan, did you want to respond to that? Well, yeah, I would just, you know, I would just add that, uh, you know, the, the dynamic with Japan um, and, and, you know, like the Eurozone as well, when, when you're just thinking about what's the dollar trading against um, and, the, and the world's other biggest bond markets. Um, you know, one thing that I think it's a little hard to communicate uh, is that sovereign debt, like, like why would Japan matter for, for U.S. financial markets? Like, uh, you know, when, when the Bank of Japan came in and, uh, you know, went from 25 BIP yield curve control to 50 BIPs, like why did global bonds sell off? Um, and it's because sovereign debt as an asset class is fungible on, a, on an FX hedged basis, right? So there's there's currency swap markets, right? Um, and so when rates say if you know if they abandon their yield curve control policy, which I don't think they can meaningfully do given debt to GDP is like 250, 260 percent, um, they're they're purposely trying to erode real debt burdens uh, with this policy. Um, but they have a ton of ammunition. They have you know a trillion dollars in, in FX reserves, um, so they can like it's kind of there's almost a circular logic where they're Conducting yield curve control while also intervening in uh, the FX market to to kind of stem speculators shorting the yen. Um, so I mean they can play the game for a while, uh, but it's interesting, you know, if they did, you know, say abandon it, you know, temporarily or again like kind of move from fifty bips to hundred bips or whatever for their their ten year their ten year peg. Uh, it would be interesting to see kind of the the global bond market reaction because. Uh, that that policy is is one of the things that are keeping global sovereign bond yields uh, pinned, not pinned, but lower than they would be, right? Because you know they, they're easing, and uh, on an FX hedge basis, you know sovereign debt as an asset is fungible. So that's an interesting dynamic that you're starting to hit there. Let, let me ask you, because a lot of governments seem like they're trying to, you know, to borrow an expression, to ride two horses with one ass, right? In that they're trying to protect both their currency markets and the market for sovereign bonds, right? So that works as long as you're not in an environment of inflation. But as soon as you have to make your yields on your bonds basically match what's going on with inflation, then it's very difficult, right? The only way to basically do that and maintain whatever yields uh, you know you need to be able to service the debt, you need to basically your the government or central bank or whatever it is needs to become the buyer of those bonds, which automatically debases the currency. So we had Brent on here a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago, basically talking about this decision that governments are going to have to make around the world, either to save their currency markets or their bond markets in general. Do either of you guys have an opinion on, is this the year that governments are going to have to make that decision ultimately? Do you have a sense of which way they would, or what, where, which way do you think they would ultimately lean? How do you guys view sort of the push-pull in between those two markets? I think that the, the U.S. is weaponizing the dollar to an extent, right? We kind of have this geopolitical war going on. Uh, China is like weaponizing supply chains uh, with their, their zero COVID policy. I mean, no one really knows what's going on in China. It's kind of a black box um, with, with Xi's policies, but uh, you know, the zero COVID policies are, are certainly kind of uh, wreaking some havoc on supply chains. Russia is weaponizing energy and their commodities. Uh, and, the, and the U.S. is and, and or really G7 um, with, you know, with Russia and whatnot. They they weaponized 
their currencies, um, but really the dollar as this global reserve currency. Uh, and you know, if we do get a period of higher for longer, you know, the U.S. can kind of uh, bankrupt the world, right? And and like the Luke Roman thesis of the treasury, uh, and, and you know, the treasury will go bankrupt essentially if if we have rates this long. Well, the treasury is the last to go bankrupt. The world goes bankrupt first. Um, so I think that's that's a real interesting thing is that we can almost, you know, if if we just look at like geopolitical strategy, we don't know what they're thinking, right? Um, but one of the things that would really, um, I mean, hurt their hurt the U.S.'s enemies and allies alike is an extremely strong dollar. Uh, but it would almost kind of it, we're exporting our inflation to the world, uh, and then you know if if the world does you know if we do bankrupt the world, you know who's the first to touch you know if you think about the Cantillion effect, who's the first to kind of get that access to new dollars if the Fed does monetize debt again, right? If they do, because like okay, say the Fed's choosing or the the Fed U.S. government is choosing the currency instead of the bond market, right? Uh, well, if they, you know, instead decide, okay, we'll lay off the gas a little bit, uh, we'll, we'll weaken the dollar and we'll, you know, we'll uh, kind of intervene in the bond market again. Well, if, if the world is so-called bankrupted um, by these policies, well, the U.S. kind of gets that fresh influx of cash and can, can almost, you know, buy up the world per se. And I, I know that's like kind of hyperbolic, uh, but I think that's par- partially what's going on. I think this is a distinct policy decision. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's one that's obviously very, very effective, right? So U.S. markets are obviously hurting a bit uh, and bondholders have, have been hurt um, because of the duration move and stocks have gone down 20 percent. Uh, but but I think the U.S. is, is like many people say, kind of the, the cleanest of the dirty shirts. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how long they can play the game. I've got just one more sort of line of questioning as it relates to, to macro, and then we can sort of get into the intersection of, of crypto and macro. But, you know, one other thing that's important to pay attention to, I think, and I know this was highlighted, Will, in in your report, was just liquidity. And there are a couple of different things to pay attention to there. So there's the reverse repo facility. There's the TGA, which is the Treasury General account. And then there's the Fed's balance sheet. So when we kind of look into this into this year, it's it's hard to get uh, sort of a, a gauge on liquidity what, because you still have a whole bunch of uh, assets that are sitting, I think it's about $2 trillion that's sitting in reverse repo, which if that were to flow out into the economy, that's very bullish liquidity. At the same time, you know, QT, which is the Fed has been uh, telegraphing for a long period of time, is like finally starting uh, to take effect. And then the, the TGA, I'll be honest, I just don't really know how to, to forecast that. And that swings pretty wildly around, to be honest. So there's sort of these like factors, these big components of liquidity, they're sort of bouncing up against each other. Do you guys have like a sense or framework internally about how you think about liquidity conditions? And if so, like, again, headwind, tailwind going into this year, do you think? Yeah, I would just say, you know, in, in the report, we included this chart, which exactly how you described. Um, we looked at the Fed balance sheet, reverse repo, and then TGA account. Um, and so I'd say, you know, as, you know, if we go back to the beginning of this, well, the beginning of last year, um, you know, it's crazy to think that the Fed was still doing QE in January of last year. Um, but at the same time, we did start to see, you know, liquidity flow out into the reverse repo facility. Um, and so that's been something that I personally been watching very closely. And we've been talking about a lot in reports that we send out to clients is, um, you know, when you when you watch reverse repo flows, you've seen the markets pretty closely correlated with that um, over the last year or so. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think Darius Dale came up with the, the net liquidity kind of function of, OK, everybody's looking at the Fed balance sheet. Um, but. Uh, once, once like the Fed, you know, they're doing 120 billion dollars of, of printing uh, debt monetization a month. They stuffed so much liquidity into the system. Uh, they, you know, they there was the banks had, were were so flush with reserves. They didn't know what to do. Uh, they didn't know what to do with all that money. 
And so all of a sudden you see reverse repo go from zero, zero dollars, not even being utilized in, at the beginning of 2021 to, to skyrocketing up to, you know, one trillion. Now it's sitting at two trillion dollars of just uh, basically just, you know, excess liquidity just being parked in this. So um, I think it's it's really interesting to kind of monitor if you just like chart that the SBX uh, and you overlay it with the Fed balance sheet uh, and, and then you kind of subtract the excess liquidity parked in uh, the reverse repo and then also, you know, account for the 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 treasury general account drawing down, um, you get a really interesting correlation there. And I think that's kind of a, a not a primary driver, but certainly eh, maybe a primary driver of, of markets, right? Like the whole game, everyone kind of knew the game, whether it's crypto, S and P 500, like anything that, you know, post post COVID, the game was liquidity. Don't fight the fed. They're, they're pumping money. And now, you know, the fed's like, all right, guys, like not the gig is up, Temp- uh, but temporarily the gig is up, right? We're, we're going to, you know, money printer go burn. Now it's like almost a money vacuum, right? So we're going to, we're sucking up all that liquidity uh, and market participants uh, are kind of, you know, we see them back and forth seesaw, like fighting the Fed. And then, you know, Jerome Powell comes out, uh, Jackson Hole, and he's like, no guys, like literally sell your stocks and the markets tank again. And it's kind of like, it's just like back and forth. And so I honestly think they, they the Fed has done a really you know, I got to give them credit. They've done a good job of like a controlled drawdown, right? Like it, you know, the VIX has gone above 40, right? So like every, every time things get oversold, every time, you know, there's somewhat of a panic in markets and volatility explodes, you know, they walk out, you know, uh, daily and the fed speakers and they're like, all right guys, you know, um, and, and, uh, like Bullard comes out and he's like, all right, like maybe we'll ease off and markets rip. And, and, you know, so it's like this, this really interesting, like seesaw effect. And I'm not sure, uh, when it exactly ends, but I don't think the gig, you know, the, the gig or the game is is up yet, right? I, I still think there's there's some more pain to go and a, some some you know more excess liquidity in the system. Um, so we'll see. But you know, really, like all the speculative names. If you look at all the best performers in 2020 and 2021, you know, look what they did in 2022. They all got killed. It, it wasn't even about the names or or the story or the narrative. It was it was a liquidity game. And so I think that's that's still the driver. I think also when you look at a bunch of different, you know, correlations to BTC and ETH or even like the broader crypto market cap, um, you know, when you look at the correlation to that, you know, liquidity, uh, net liquidity index that Darius Dale uh, kind of coined, as you as you described, um, after 2020, we really started to see that correlation really ramp up, at least with, with Bitcoin and ETH. Uh, whereas, you know, some of the, the two other biggest are just looking at uh, M2 money supply and the Dixie, which Bitcoin and ETH have basically been inversely correlated to for all of their history. Um, but looking at that net liquidity index after 2020, you really started to see a complete, uh, you know, correlation with that kind of trading in lockstep. Um, and so I think that just kind of highlights how, you know, as Travis Kling likes to say, everything is one trade and it's basically all about liquidity for the last two years. Yeah, maybe, maybe now we can kind of transition into crypto because, there, you know, there are these great charts that you can find around, but where you can sort of matches up some measure of liquidity. I'm not sure if it was Darius's or, or whatever, but you can look at liquidity, dollar liquidity in the S&P, and it tracks basically perfectly. And you sort of have in front of that uh, perfect correlation, you've got kind of this combination of Bitcoin and crypto almost front running expectations of liquidity. And that relationship was pretty solid for the last couple of years. And I know some people, I'd love to get your opinion on like whether or not you guys think that's a good thing, right? For a long period of time, Bitcoin was seen as this uncorrelated asset class. That was a big selling point, big part of the narrative. I'm not as convinced personally that it's a bad thing that, you know, crypto like fits now within a, an allocation framework for global investors. But that that relationship was certainly there. Uh, we've, you know, in my view, we've kind of seen that break down uh, in the past couple months. And re- really, honestly, post Terra Luna, uh, we've decoupled lower, which in some senses isn't great. Right? Uh, we've got the fundamentals in our industry. Uh, 
uh, have trumped that that correlation and relationship. But also, I think it's interesting because probably it means to me a lot of investors, like more macro sort of institutional investors, have left, right? Which means that that correlation is just down. I'd love to get your guys' kind of thoughts about how how important is this connection to liquidity and connection with macro, and how much does that inform what's going on in crypto, like? now and how much do you see it informing what's going to happen to crypto in 2023 yeah i mean i think when you you know go back and look at the you know inception of bitcoin it was created as a check on central banks right and that doesn't necessarily mean inflation and so i think like over the last two to three years you've obviously had this huge narrative that took off uh for bitcoin in terms of being digital gold and this inflation hedge uh, i think the more kind of accurate representation as we've kind of described through you know some of these correlations over the last you know ten, five ten minutes um, is, you know, I would say Bitcoin is a monetary debasement hedge and not a CPI inflation hedge. Uh, and, you know, maybe that sounds like cope to some of the, uh, the Bitcoin skeptics out there. But, you know, I, th I think, you know, it's an important nuance to be made because CPI inflation tends to lag when the liquidity actually comes into the system, right? And so you had 40% of all the dollars in creation uh, that ever existed that were created in the beginning of 2020 in the response to COVID. Um, and Bitcoin reacted the quickest, uh, you know, off that liquidity injection. And, you know, you had Paul Tudor Jones come out with his whole uh, fastest horse, you know, thesis. And, you know, I, I think uh, you had an overlap period where, you know, liquidity was still coming into the system and, you know, starting to finally get reflected in CPI. I think it was one of those things where people were looking at correlation and not causation in terms of, um, you know, Bitcoin trading a certain way because of CPI. I would say, as you described, Bitcoin's kind of sniffed out um, you know, Fed policy before it's even taken place. Uh, again, it was, it was, you know, the first thing to react the most aggressively uh, off of the lows and, and you know, in, after the COVID crash. And then, you know, more interestingly, I think it was the, the first asset to really correct aggressively. Uh, as soon as I think the, the Bitcoin top, this is a fun fact, the Bitcoin top at 69K was the same day that Powell came out and said that they no longer viewed inflation as transitory. Uh, and mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of a good uh, reflection of, you know, exactly, you know, Bitcoin serving the purpose that it's meant to be, which is um, basically serving as a check on central bank monetary policy. Yeah, I, I kind of agree there. Uh, I mean, obviously, we, we've had two uh, kind of negative catalysts in the, the you know, uh, Luna implosion, the FTX implosion, where I think it happened both times during kind of a, a short squeeze uh, rally in global risk assets, equities, right? So like we got the decoupling, it was to the downside. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think, I think some of the, yeah, we finally got it guys. Uh, um, it, I think it is, it is a liquidity game. Um, also, you know, it's just like, I think, I think a lot of the performance in hindsight, right? Hindsight is 2020, but if we just think of like, you know, the explosion of DeFi, right. And then uh, specifically, uh, kind of the the excessive leverage that was put on um, across the crypto ecosystem in the form of like, you know, people thought uh, whether it was like, you know, 15% annualized futures basis or like 10, 15, 20% DeFi yields, right? Like all of this uh, was kind of like the same few billion dollars of, of stable coins and, and money. 45% the uh, peak in 2021. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, was, it was nuts, right? Um, and so... And then, you know, come to find out that, like, you have, like, Alex Mashinsky, right? Like, the DeFi ecosystem is very transparent, but then you have, like, the uh, Celsius's of the world and, like, you know, the the Voyagers of the world and all these guys, like, you know, doing unsecured lending or, like, punting their user funds into, like, these farms. And so, like, that was, like, the, the hidden part of all the leverage. So I think the correlations still persist. We'll see that in the future. And, and Michael, like, uh, we talked on uh, on Monday and, you know, the shoddy Wi-Fi 
kind of the scrap scrapped our scrapped our recording. We got rugs, but um, we we talked about uh, we talked about that correlation into the future, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Like people always talk about, like oh, Bitcoin should be this uncorrelated thing. It's like, well, no. I think if you want to think about Bitcoin like winning, right? Like if you think about Bitcoin, like the Bitcoin thesis, the Bitcoiners, you know, if Bitcoin is a a global reserve asset, never mind like the unit of account global reserve currency. Like we don't even have to go that far out. Just like Bitcoin wins, it's digital gold. And I know that for some people, that's like the bear thesis, which is fine. Like, you know, uh, I, I somewhat agree that it can be much, much more than a five, $10 trillion asset. That's, you know, the equivalent of like, you just kind of store it in your vault and leave it there. Uh, but even if it's just that, right, like $10 trillion asset, uh, well, that, that means that it's, it's somewhat monetized. Um, it's, I mean, that's a 30 X from here at a $300 billion market cap. And that means it's monetized on the balance sheet of 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 uh, of the globe. And so, if you're thinking about like this dollar short squeeze, like we talked about, there's there's a hundred trillion, you know, two hundred trillion dollars of of dollar short positions out there, uh, of forced buying of dollars. And then you think about the asset side of the balance sheet, where you have equities, bonds. You know, bonds are I guess one person's asset, another person's liability. Um, Bitcoin, right? Like they're going to be correlated, and I think that's a good thing. Um, so maybe the correlation isn't, isn't very strong now. There's somewhat of an apathy out there in terms of like the lowest ever historical volatility, the lowest ever implied volatility. Um, there's, there's just, there's not many market participants out there. It's like, you kind of have the DCA crowd and, uh, and that's basically it, right? Like there's not many four sellers here. It's just, you know, there's, there's just, it's just like a, like if you're just looking at the log chart, it just looks like everyone's left. And I think that's indicative of everyone leaving. <laughs> um, so, so we'll see when the next like, kind of like, you know, hyper volatile uh, cycle begins or not cycle, but uh, you know, hyper volatile period. Uh, but right now I think we're at that, we're at that consolidation period of like, okay, yeah, all the bodies washed ashore, uh, only the convicted remain, but there's not, you know, there's not all the, the billionaires or, you know, the, the, the crypto native funds that are chucking money on the table because they all got wiped, right? So, like, so we got some time. Uh, I think we get we get to watch this economic cycle play out, and and maybe there's more downside catalysts in general in terms of risk assets, um, which I I would have a hard time believing that like Bitcoin and crypto are suddenly like immune to, uh, just being like objective. Um, but yeah, I, I think the correlation will persist in the future, and and given the lack of or like maybe the relative illiquidity of Bitcoin and crypto broadly, like I would expect during the next up cycle, during the, the, the uh, kind of recovery, that, that that volatility remains to the upside. Um, and so I think that's somewhat of a, of a bull case during the next kind of liquidity uh, up cycle. Yeah, I, I think mm -hmm. just to riff off that as well, like, you know, I, I think kind of to summarize what Dylan just said is all the momentum buyers are gone and the only, you know, current buyers, at least at Bitcoin, are, are primarily value buyers. Um, and, you know, there's several, at least, you know, from like an on-chain data perspective, um, you know, Dylan and I post a lot of these charts on Twitter of all these different valuation metrics. Um, you know, we could run through like five or 10 of them, but I think just the super high level takeaway is at least on a historical basis. And again, you know, Bitcoin hasn't existed in a you know period of, of monetary tightening. Um, but, you know, at least on a historical basis, Bitcoin is, you know, extremely undervalued. Um, and also to, to Dylan's point as well. Um, you know, a lot of the, the tourists are gone, uh, right? And, you know, we think about these people who just come in during the bull market, um, you know, they check out and then come back in at, at the next all-time high. And, you know, when we look at, uh, you know, when we look at active addresses, for example, on Bitcoin, one, this is, you know, one of the metrics that I always like to go back and look at. It's a very bare bones metric, 
Um, it's, it's, you know, not very fancy, but it, it also tells a, a very important story. Um, you know, when you go back and look historically, obviously, the number of active addresses ramp up in a bull market. You have a bunch of people who all of a sudden want to buy Bitcoin because it's going up only uh, and broader crypto assets as well. Uh, but, you know, as we head into the bear market, um, yes, you know, the active addresses uh, decline. But the more important, you know, the, the kind of signal in this is every single bear market, uh, the number of active addresses makes a higher low. And we still haven't made a higher low in active addresses at the moment on Bitcoin. And I think that's just a reflection of, you know, every single cycle you have, you know, these, these you know, new market participants, new network users that come in, um, you know, a lot of those people do leave because they perhaps, you know, don't really fully take the time to grok Bitcoin and understand the value proposition. Uh, but an increasing amount of people do every single time. Uh, and I think that's kind of the, the signal and the noise. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you have been there last year. Uh, it is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero. Just a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you'll get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10, because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Yeah, I would agree with you. Maybe we can start to group a couple of like buckets within sort of Bitcoin and crypto, which is sort of Bitcoin and I'll include like miners there. I know, Will, you were starting to get into that. So I'd love to get your your thoughts on that. Uh, then we maybe we could talk a little bit about like ETH and sort of ETH scaling, right? Like layer twos and ZKs getting a lot of attention um, and then like everything else, right? Which has been basically like, let's call that like the Solana, AVAX, sort of Cosmos, uh, like alternative layer one thing. Um, one thing, you know, while we're, we're, on, while we're still on the subject of, of Bitcoin here, I've sort of waffled a little bit on this myself, right? The narrative of Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation. On the one hand, right, I, I understand that's been like popularly maligned, but I'm not actually sure if that's fair because, you know, for two reasons. So one, if you look at gold, gold trades inversely correlated to real rates, right? And it's actually... The more accurate way of saying that is it trades inversely correlated to the expectation of real rates. So if you go back to the 70s when there was rampant inflation, gold wasn't ripping when inflation was peaking because the expectate, because the thought process was at that time, real rates are already so negative, there's only room to the upside, basically. So the, the move sort of happens before, right? Markets are forward looking, including expectations on, on rates and real rates. The other thing is, if you think about what a hedge is supposed to be, it's insurance, right? So if you think about insurance from the perspective of like you get your house insured in case it goes up on, you know, in case it gets lit on fire, then if you buy the insurance before your house gets lit on fire, then it's going to be a plus EV purchase, right? But if your house is on fire and then you're like, I want to buy insurance for my, for my home, it's not going to protect you against anything, right? Because the cost of the insurance is going to be more than the home. So that would be sort of my critique, right? It's like if you view Bitcoin as a hedge and you buy it as like an insurance policy based on central banks debasing or rampant inflation or whatever, you have to buy it before it happens. Obviously, if you bought it after the threat materializes, it's not going to save you from much. You know, I, I'd be curious what you guys, I think the, the inflation hedge narrative has gotten maligned, but I kind of waffle back and forth on whether or not that's fair as a critique or not. Yeah, I, I mean, Will, Will said it uh, best, uh, you know, 10 minutes ago in terms of like, yeah, people think of like people incorrectly were like, ah, oh, Bitcoin's a year over year CPI hedge. Uh, 
which it's it's not it's like i mean really every asset on the planet is just flows right like there are fundamentals to an asset but uh the the traditional value investor the reason that so many macro people that are like otherwise you know the bit like all that agree with the bitcoin or that like the broad based bitcoiner thesis right like the brent johnsons of the world or uh mm. you know the mike greens of the world who like i actually love listening to and and, and hearing their in-depth analysis on things um but they they say you know like i i don't get the whole bitcoin thing and that's fine right like that's that's what we you want in markets um but but like you know, because what are the fundamentals of Bitcoin? There's no cash flow. There, there's no earnings, right? So, like the traditional value investor is like, "What the hell is this thing? It's just a, a liquidity gauge." And then I would say, "Yeah, it is a liquidity gauge, exactly, uh, right?" And it's just marginal buyers and marginal sellers. For that's that's any asset. It just flows. Uh, and here we have an absolutely scarce thing. And so the supply and elasticity of it works both ways. Uh, one of the things that I I probably put a little bit too much weight into was that like the on-chain data during the second uh, double double bubble, double pump was extremely strong, right? Like there, there, you know, like the, fl the free float was extremely constrained. It was like, oh gosh, like this thing might actually just like mega rip even further past these all time highs. Um, and what was wrong was that all it took was a small amount of sellers on the margin, even though the, the, the thing is so inelastic, there's, you know, 80% of the float doesn't even touch the market. Uh, but, but the price lost 80%. Like how did that happen? Um, and it happened just because that supply, the supply and elasticity, similar to like oil in a way, right? Where like just a marginal change in like you know a couple million barrels of of production, right? Like maybe of SPR releases or you know Russia goes offline and oil rips, right? Or like if you just look at say like maybe two thousand eight, right? Where oil rips and then crashes by eighty percent, right? Like the marginal uh, supply of, of oil didn't actually change all that much. The marginal demand barely changed, but the price rapidly changed. It's similar. Like Bitcoin is similar. It's not a, a, a direct uh, comparison or maybe the best analogy. Uh, but I think that's that's how I think about it. It's just it's a, it's a game of marginal flows, marginal buyers and marginal sellers. And what has me, you know, perma bullish on Bitcoin for the long term, not not next week, not next month, not this quarter, not that I'm like overly bearish at 17K. I'm not, you know, massively leveraged short Bitcoin here. Like, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I know that Bitcoin will never have more than 21 million because I run the software, I run a node and I, I, I can guarantee that for myself. And I also know that there's a growing amount of price agnostic buyers of this asset over the long term. And so regardless of what happens this quarter this year, I know that 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 crazy group of Bitcoiners with laser eyes that are, you know, that are mean to you on Twitter are ultimately just like buying this thing and never selling it. And so when the flows return, whether it's liquidity or whether it's, uh, you know, a, a new group of buyers come in, you know, sovereign wealth fund or whatever, like the, the, the narrative has changed over the course of Bitcoin. And we've seen the narrative, you know, uh, arise and then get crushed when, when the price goes down 80%, but it's never died, right? Like Mt. Gox was the only exchange on the planet. It collapsed. Bitcoin didn't die. Like how did it not die? Well, because like there was that, you know, intolerant minority of hodlers that were like, no, like I'm going to buy this thing. I'm not going to sell it. I don't care. And so regardless of how low it goes, like I'm, I'm uber confident that, uh, the exchange rate will recover. Uh, I don't know how long it takes. Um, but I know that on one hand we have that story. And on the other hand, we have the story that, uh, just by the nature of the system of, of uh, credit expansion in a fiat monetary system, uh, there needs to be an ever expanding money supply. There needs to be an ever expanding uh, um, supply of, of, of credit in the system. And so on those two things, right, like numerator denominator uh, over the long term, I, I see no other reason uh, but to be bullish uh, on a fixed supply asset that no one can manipulate that has a rising marginal production cost.
Like, I think that's, that's the thesis. Um, and it's, it's widely misunderstood. Uh, and people often mis, uh, misinterpret or confuse the timeline of that thesis. They're like, haha, like Bitcoin's down 70%. Like it wasn't an inflation hedge after all. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, Bitcoin started 2020 at, at 6K, right? Like, so, so like, I mean, it's worked out, right? Like, obviously there's an, a class of, of buyers that are underwater, but this happens literally every cycle. <laughs> like the average Bitcoin holder is underwater literally every bear market. It's, it's, it's happened three or four times. Um, so, so the story is unchanged. And I, I think that's just like the, the most challenging, but also uh, the most fun thing to communicate is like, guys, this literally nothing has changed. It just, it's just, you can buy 4X more than you could when, when everybody loved the thesis. Yeah, and I think you could see that in the data exactly what Dylan's saying. I mean, you can look at several things, no matter how nuanced you want to get, even just looking at something as simple as the amount of Bitcoin supply that hasn't moved in a year. Uh, that's right near all-time highs, I believe at 67 or 68%. Uh, you can look at something that uh, Glassnode, which is the on-chain data provider that Dylan and I both primarily use. Um, you can look at something called long-term holder supply, which is uh, defined as uh, an on-chain entity that's held their Bitcoin for at least 155 days. Uh, long-term holder supply is near all-time highs. And then, you know, to kind of highlight also Dylan's point about, you know, people kind of, um, you know, holding their Bitcoin down with, with an extreme amount of conviction. When we look at the percentage of, of Bitcoin supply that's underwater uh, by, held by long-term holders, that's also at an all-time high. Uh, so, you know, however you want to slice it, um, you know, there's absolutely a, you know, hardcore group of individuals out there that are going to continue stacking Bitcoin no matter what the price. And, you know, I think I think that group of individuals understands that, you know, kind of the year over year change in the exchange rate has nothing to do with the under, you know, the underlying fundamental thesis for the asset over the next five, 10 plus years. Hmm. Well, you're starting to get a little bit into the, the mining dynamic. Uh, for those of you, there, there are parts and viewers of the show who don't really understand the way, you know, kind of mining uh, versus Bitcoin price kind of Kind of work, and you were talking about minor capitulation, which tends to mark the bottom of these sorts of, uh, of crypto cycles. At least, so can you describe a little bit about the relationship of mining and price of Bitcoin, then also sort of your your thesis on how much that's uh, the tail that's wagging the dog, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just from like a super first principles basis, when you think about um, you know what are the kind of variables that go into being a successful Bitcoin miner, uh, miners are essentially long Bitcoin spot price. Uh, they're short energy costs. And then they're also short hash rate, right? You know, given that hash rate is basically a reflection of the competition to mine on the network. Um, and so, you know, over time, it becomes increasingly difficult uh, to mine BTC. And we can look at something called uh, hash price, uh, which looks at minor revenues and hash rate to basically get uh, price per tear hash. Um, and that, that perpetually, you know, declines over time as more people uh, mine Bitcoin. So you already, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining already is a very... Um, you know, competitive industry to get into to, to start. Um, but this year has been particularly difficult for miners. Um, and the reason behind this is because when we look at global energy prices, they're up across the board. Um, so if you don't have, you know, fixed energy contracts as a miner, um, you know, your margins are getting squeezed by that. Uh, also, the underlying Bitcoin that you're mining, uh, the, the exchange rate of that is down 80%. And then lastly, we've seen hash rate continue to rip throughout the year. Um, so we've seen this continued squeeze uh, on minor margins throughout the entire year. Uh, and I would argue that it's probably been the most difficult time period for miners uh, over the last uh, 12 months. And we've seen that reflected in, you know, firms such as, well, first of all, just in the, you know, stock prices of, uh, you know, all the Bitcoin miners, which is partially just them trading as like higher beta to, to Bitcoin spot, but, um, you know, in, in large portion because their, minor, their, their margins are getting compressed. 
Um, but you know, we've seen several firms either have to sell the majority of their Bitcoin holdings, a lot of the public miners uh, having to trim a large portion of their Bitcoin holdings. Um, you know, the most notable one was Core Scientific, um, partially because they had a large amount of debt. You know, when we look at uh, debt to assets, debt to equity, uh, Core Scientific was by far the largest, uh, you know, debt holder of, of all the public miners. Uh, I'd also throw in there that, you know, Riot has the, the lowest amount of debt out of any, you know, public miner that's out there. Um, Riot also has uh, fixed energy contracts with the state of Texas. Um, so I think, you know, out of all the, and again, uh, disclosure, I don't own any Riot, neither does any of the reflexivity team. But I think, you know, someone like a Riot um, who has some of the components that I just described is, is probably the, you know, one of the better firms out there that are, you know, kind of, um, you know, situated to, to kind of weather the storm. And I think, um, I think, you know, you'll probably see over time, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, yes, this is, uh, you know, if this is such a bad time to, to, to be mining, why do you feel like, you know, hash rate, hash rate will trend up over time? I would say, first of all, you know, if you're bullish on Bitcoin, um, you know, over a five, 10 plus year time horizon, it's almost, you know, always a good time to at least, you know, get involved in mining to, to some extent. But I think, you know, you'll, you'll have more energy producers that, you know, have excess energy that they otherwise would be wasting. They're able to leverage that to, you know, um, mine Bitcoin and, and, you know, basically generate revenue in, in, you know, a way that they weren't previously able to. I think one really interesting example of this is the Great American Mining Company. Um, this was something that I heard from a podcast that uh, Marty Bent did, who's one of the kind of Bitcoin thought leaders. Um, basically, what they do is they go out into, uh, there's like a, I forget exactly what, what the, uh, Dylan, maybe you know this, but what exactly the firm to, uh, did that was mining like physical like rocks out in like the middle of the desert or something in, in the Midwest. And, um, you know, they have to flare off the excess energy that they're that they're not using. And, you know, there's obviously like environmental restrictions on, you know, how much they can flare off in, into the you know atmosphere and, you know, they, they get surveilled on that. And so therefore, they're not able to operate 24 um, seven. Now, what, you know, the Great American Mining Company does is they come out with, you know, essentially these containers, they bring them out, you know, they can bring them out anywhere, as long as they have access to power and tap into the Bitcoin network anywhere. Um, and they say, say to these guys, okay, look, if you give us, you know, dirt cheap energy, or even, you know, in some cases, give us this energy for free, um, you know, we'll come in and, and utilize that. So it's a win-win for both, both parties, right? Because on one hand, you know, the miner is able to get access to, you know, near free uh, energy costs. And then at the same time, um, you know, the, the physical miner who's had to flare off the energy otherwise is now able to operate for a longer period of time and, you know, increase their revenue as well. So I think um, you'll see more things like that. Um, you also have seen things like, you know, Exxon and Shell kind of hinting at, you know, at least showing interest in potentially getting involved in Bitcoin mining. Um, and so I think like if you think over a long time horizon, the I guess if you look at the, the percentage share of, of hash rate over time um, and what's made up as I guess I would frame it as like passive hash rate versus kind of active, uh, you know, Bitcoin mining operations that are solely launched, you know, to a business that's launched. Say, hey, look, like we're going to go out and mine Bitcoin. I think you'll probably see a larger percentage of hash rate be made up by these quote unquote like passive mining operations that just have you know dirt cheap energy. Yeah, I, I think I agree there. Um, the the commodity like the commoditization of of ASICs I think is real. Um, you know, I I don't think in ten years you're going to have uh, large scale commercial operations that are just you know plugged into the grid with the the sole purpose of mining. Uh, you know, potentially um, or at least at least like in a you know, like near, like what we're seeing in Texas, right? Like uh, where all these miners come in, uh, they, they're on the ERCOT grid. 
and and basically they have they have fixed uh, power contracts and they they agree to sell some of that energy back to the grid uh, during kind of peak baseload demand. I think that's a sustainable uh, it's a sustainable business model. Uh, but in terms of like the minor uh, equity uh, equity price, right? Like we saw these miners were just like levered bait on Bitcoin. They were leveraged against Bitcoin. They all had kind of hodl strategies. Um, you know, twenty public miners that got access to public financing. You know, that all levered up. Like uh, I, I kind of think of I have a basic framework, um, and, and Will referred to it earlier. Like hash price, minor minor revenue per terahash divided by or uh, minor revenue per terahash, right? Minor revenue. Uh, in Bitcoin terms or dollar terms, divided by hash rate. You got to standardize that. Miners, uh, if, if you're buying a miner, right, like ultimately your goal should be to outperform Bitcoin. That should be your benchmark. Otherwise, like just buy Bitcoin. Um, and I, if you look at like the hash price cycles, when hash price is increasing or hash price is decreasing, um, and when hash price is increasing, the miner margins and profitability are increasing. Uh, basically, like the simple framework is miners outperform Bitcoin when hash price is increasing and they they vastly underperform Bitcoin when hash price is decreasing. Um, so I think it's actually a really interesting strategy to, uh, you know, and I've done some of this personally, like use miners uh, as both a, a tool for outperformance uh, and uh, somewhat of a, of a hedge during these bear market cycles when, you know, we know post-China miner ban, post-2020, uh, 2021 kind of uh, bubble, there's a lag time in terms of of all of these new rigs that got produced, that got manufactured coming online, you know, rack space that like these things take time and it, it, there's a lot of physical infrastructure that has to be built out. And so regardless of what the Bitcoin price is doing, if the Bitcoin price is just stagnating um, and we see hash rate pumping to new highs, right? Like that's bearish for miners. That's bearish for miners in Bitcoin terms. Uh, so I think it's like, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens next cycle and we'll see how many, you know, public miners we have or, or whether we have a lot of standalone companies like Will was saying, or we have much more of like the integration with energy markets, right? Where, you know, Shell has a mining operation and Exxon has a mining operation. And like, we should preface this with, with saying that that mining is still, the, the Bitcoin mining industry is still tiny. It's, it's ex extremely tiny. It's like, you know, $20 million of revenue a day at this point, 900 BTC times, you know, 17K. It's not even, it's not even 20, uh, 20 million a day. It's less than that. It's like 16 million a day. And that's revenue. It's not even profits, right? So, so for an Exxon, for for uh, for a Shell, that's like, you know, couch, uh, you know, change under the couch cushion. Um, so, like, I think it's a really opportune time for these energy producers to come in to scoop up some cheap ASICs, maybe to acquire some mining firms uh, and repurpose this and integrate it with their uh, with their operations. So we'll see what happens. Um, I think it's 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 pretty phenomenal to watch Bitcoin hash rate like on a you know fourteen day moving average basis. It's made new highs today, right? So all-time highs. Um, that's pretty pretty nuts when you think about Bitcoin being down seventy five percent from its highs, uh, and that's just kind of another piece of the story. When I when I say you know the macro people misunderstand what's happening here, uh, that's just kind of another another thing I look to is like, okay, if this thing is dead, why are un under the surface hash rate going to new highs? Why is hash rate like Bitcoin was twenty thousand dollars in twenty seventeen, and some of the skeptics will be like. You see, like it's gone sideways for five years, six years. And I'll be like, yeah, the hash rate was 3x a hash. And now it's 300. Like, and that, what do you that think is going on here? Cost is very ingrained, I think, uh, into the price of Bitcoin. It's hard to kind of standardize what exactly, you know, the kind of aggregated, you know, cost to produce a Bitcoin is because there's several variables at play there. Some people have tried to do it. For example, Charles Edwards from uh, Capriol Investments. You can go on TradingView and type in, uh, I think it's production cost is the indicator, and you can see what what. And he's described his uh, 
thought process for you know putting the indicator together and he's got it at like uh i think around 15 to 17k as, as production cost but um you know at least with looking at that indicator which i don't think is a perfect representation again because you know so many different miners have you know different variable input costs but um you know you you see that price does very much interact with that and i think you know from like a first principles basis it's because you know if you're a miner you're going to want to sell bitcoin for more than what you produce it for right and so i think from bitcoin's inception i mean the very first exchange rate for bitcoin um was based on the uh, cost to produce it on your laptop so you know i think over time you know if solely you 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 agree with what dylan and i are saying that you know it makes sense for you know energy producers to utilize bitcoin mining in some capacity and you think you know a $20 million revenue a day industry is likely to grow, you know, 5x from here. Um, you know, that in itself should, should you know, from a first principles basis, you know, over time bring up Bitcoin's price as well. Hmm. I've got a, I've got a question actually. If you get, one of the interesting things about miners, there's, I think in basically any sector of crypto, there's more public, public stock miners, right, than just about any other category. Um, most public crypto equities are getting absolutely smashed right now. So like Coinbase is uh, completely in the gutter. Uh, I want to talk to you guys about Silvergate, Dylan. I know you've been tweeting a lot uh, about the whole situation that's going on over there. I, I personally think a lot of people, because of this whole idea that you can't value Bitcoin, right? I've got no cash flows here, so I don't, I can't get comfortable with Bitcoin. But what I'm going to get comfortable with is a company that produces cash flows, even if it's entirely based on Bitcoin or crypto as an ecosystem like Coinbase, right? So if you actually looked at most public crypto equities, they outperformed on the way up. Right. They actually did in terms of price appreciation, MicroStrategy, Coinbase, you know, Voyager, RIP, uh, you know, Galaxy, Silvergate, whatever it was, it did better on the way up. But now they're getting absolutely smoked on the way down. And I think there was kind of a hidden premium there because a lot of public market investors wanted exposure to crypto. So that's why it outperformed on the way up. Then it's gotten extracted on the way down. So it's just like basically you can almost think about it as like the grayscale premium. It's just less visible. Um, so it was a premium and now it's turned into a discount. I'd be curious, though, just because there's still a couple of overhangs in our industry, right? So uh, Silvergate, I don't, I don't know if you'd call that an overhang. It's certainly something that people are worried about. And then there is this whole ongoing situation with DCG versus Gemini. You know, I'd be curious uh, what both you guys think about those two, those two situations. Yeah, I, uh, you know, who knows what happens with DCG? It looks, uh, you know, the Winklevoss twins and, and you know, I'm not a legal uh, I, I, am not legal advice. I'm not, I'm not really, uh, um, I don't have the authority to speak on some of these things, but just my, my two cents, uh, is that, you know, they claim fraud, right? So, so that's a bold claim. Um, we'll see if that is, uh, there's certainly, uh, some, some interesting things to look at, uh, as, as GBTC is an interest, uh, is a SEC regulated product. Um, you know, they've applied for all these ETFs and things and have gotten declined, but, you know, the, we could say maybe there was a lack of disclosure. Um, there was some funny accounting uh, with the promissory uh, note that happened post uh, uh, Luna collapse. Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know the specifics on the Gemini Iron thing and all, all that. I mean, I just know what's public. Um, but there's, you know, I think similar to most of the year, right? There's like the overhang is that there uh, is balance sheet impairment uh, and there's underwater... Uh, equity assets leverage, right? So, so how does that get resolved? Um, I think there's a tail risk that, uh, and I don't think this is highly probable. I think there's a tail risk that uh, the trust is um, liquidated. I don't know that. I don't know how to quantify that probability. 
Uh, but I think there's, you know, whether that's SEC enforcement, uh, I know there's some activist campaigns going on. Um, David Bailey is, is leading that um, with redeemgbtc.com mm-hmm. in terms of just coordinating shareholders together. Um, and, and, you know, there's not a, a certain angle that's being taken yet, but more so, like, and just, just personally, like, I, I, I can attest to there being some significant institutional investors that from, from TradFi and in crypto uh, that everybody would know the names of that are um, privately signaling their support for uh, kind of a, an activist campaign. So we'll see what comes of that. I, I certainly don't know. Um, and, I, and it's probably dependent on what Gary Gensler says, honestly, um, and potentially any charges that DCG faces. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one thing to resolve. Uh, Silvergate's interesting. Um, we'll see if, if, you know, they continue to get run for their deposits. But I think all of this is just pointing to, like, I, I like to have a very basic framework of, like, okay, is this a net benefit or a detriment to, to liquidity into the future? Uh, and Silvergate was obviously a very big dollar uh, off ramp and on ramp right so so if silvergate i I don't think they necessarily go under or not um but you know that's obviously the the name's been killed right uh and certainly like there's uh some interesting aml money laundering uh things to look at in terms of you know the ftx alameda bank account situation so you know i'm not a bank analyst Uh, (laughs) I, i i you know there's a lot of things that i that i can't speak on um but i think there are some you know we, we've we've gotten rid of most of the of the significant headwinds, um, but I, I think there's still potentially some headwinds that remain, and and you know we don't quite have the wind uh, at our back yet. I, I think on Silvergate, you know, one important thing to state is that any loan exposure that they have is all Bitcoin only and over collateralized. So, for example, if you think about uh, the structure of you know MicroStrategy's uh, Bitcoin loan that they took out earlier this year, uh, they also hold no crypto on their balance sheet. So, you know, I think in terms of, you know, people were getting very concerned about contagion, you know, after the FTX blow up. I don't think in terms of, you know, direct credit exposure, that's necessarily a concern. It's more about, you know, you've seen, you know, 8 billion in withdrawals from Silvergate over a very short time period. And, you know, that causes them to have to liquidate some of the securities that they're holding as reserve assets and potentially taking hits on those as they're liquidating them. Um, I think, as Dylan also touched on the other thing to be concerned about with Silvergate, and again, uh, I'm not a you know legal expert in, or, or banking analyst either to, to make any of these claims, but I think uh, something that I would watch out for for people that are um, is, you know, concerns around potentially, you know, essentially facilitating uh, money laundering and, and, you know, fraudulent activity uh, between Alameda and FTX, whereas, you know, you've heard multiple, you know, anecdotal stories where, People basically wired money to FTX and went directly to Alameda bank accounts, and you know, mm-hmm. so it was kind of at the heart of, of between those things. Um, on the DC on the DCG stuff, I think Dylan pretty much hit on everything. Um, you know, I, I would say I, I don't think there's outright fraud going on at DCG in the same way that you know was with something like Alameda or FTX, just because it's been so long, and I think people would have sniffed that out by now. Um, I, I do think you know people need to keep in mind that Barry has a bankruptcy restructuring background, so. I think, you know, he's probably very carefully, methodically thinking about potential options. And they do have several assets. Um, I don't think that they'd be able to get the, you know, the value out of them that they maybe could have even six months ago because people know that they're under some degree of distress. Even something like a grayscale, right, which I think uh, brought in, you know, it was like 700 million in revenue in 2021 and something like two to 300 million last year with Bitcoin spot price. It depends how you calculate it, right? Maybe if you did like a VWAP for the year or something like that. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, you know, multi nine, you know, multi nine figure, you know, several hundred million dollar business. Um, you know, I think it depends on the multiple you put on that as well. But 
you know, there, there's definitely value there and that's kind of like their crown jewel. And then they also have, you know, a portfolio of uh, different investments, you know, that A, they're like either a partial or, or out, outright owner in. And they also hold a bunch of, you know, crypto, crypto venture uh, capital investments, which I don't think by any means they'd be able to get the mark to mark value of if they actually, you know, needed to liquidate them. Um, you know, I do think I do think though they have a you know a substantial you know asset base that they could potentially you know utilize to do some type of restructuring if they needed to. Um, so you know, I don't think in terms of some concerns around you know outright fraud taking place at DCG, I don't think that's the case. Um, I would say one one person to listen to on the DCG stuff and Dylan, I, I'm going to ask you for this guy's name, um, Ram, and I, f- I forget his last name, but he's uh, he's like a tradfi guy who's kind of got involved in crypto. He just recently. Um, did a podcast yesterday on Unchained. I would, I would say just type in probably Ram on, on on Twitter. You'll be able to find the guy. He's brilliant. Dylan, you're on mute. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure how to, how to say his last name. Ram, uh, A-H-L-U-W-A-L-I-A. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the yeah. guy. Al- Alawalia. That actually yeah, sounds they, a little that, familiar. That, yeah. yeah. Um, he's, he's, been, he's been covering it pretty well. Nice. Um. All right, guys, I, I want to get your your sort of general thoughts and maybe we could try to be quantitative about this. I'll just give you like the way I sort of feel about these, this thing, like going to 2023. You know, the big question that I'm trying to kind of mull over and I'd love to get both of your opinions on is, do we need to see some sort of inflection or pivot? I don't want to say pivot because it's such an overused phrase, but like a change in monetary accommodation that's initiated by the Fed in order for things to reverse in crypto. You know, some, some we were talking about when, Blockworks got founded, and that was founded, in, you know, called the top of like December 2017, as uh, when we incorporated. So we saw a lot of bear market activity. But this reminds me of a period of time, like I feel like I've lived through something like this before, where you know there was there was a point where about a year into prices just falling, there's just like not a bullish thought in sight, right? I mean, it's like all right, there are all these overhangs, and back then the story was different. It was like there's a big narrative about like high watermarks and how all these funds were never going to reach the high watermarks, and therefore they were going to have to capitulate and sell. And there was this overhang. There were like different narratives back then. But uh, if you look actually back at that time period, this is overly simplified, but the fractal basically going forward from January of 2019 is sort of up only, right? And the sentiment was still very negative and it was still definitely a bear market and there was an enormous amount of activity. But the worst in terms of sort of the fallout phase of the bear market was kind of behind us. So, you know, I struggle because I, you know, on, on, on the one hand, I, I understand the overhangs. I see the the headwinds that we've got going into this new year. But a little part of me, uh, maybe based almost on muscle memory more than anything else, is slightly positive and optimistic going into the new year. I'd be curious if you guys feel the same. Do you think you know, positive, negative going to the new year? And if positive, like, what's something you're excited about? I guess what's something that kind of jazzes you up or opportunity you see or a trend that you're paying a lot of attention to? Yeah, I mean, if you think about 2019, like what really drove the move from 3K to 14K, um, some people say that the plus token Chinese Ponzi played a part in driving like under underlying spot flows. But the majority of that run up was just a massive short squeeze. Um, and so, you know, you can look at things like funding rates and open interest to kind of gauge, you know, whether shorts are coming, you know, piling into the market or not. Um, something that we haven't seen quite yet in terms of like a very clear, like regime of, of negative funding rates, um, indicating that like a ton of shorts are piling in. We have seen at least in altcoins, you know, over the last week or so, a bunch of these like heavily shorted 
protocols such as you know Solana or a lot of like the Barry Silbert uh, DCG coins, you know, un, you know, going under these these massive short squeezes. We also saw that with Lido, people like basically shorting it the whole way up, and then uh, we saw like a fifty percent fifteen minute candle a couple of days ago, and so. I think you know it, it's just a, a small glimpse in terms of what can happen in like a high time frame sense of you know if you have people continuing to you know short the market and expect that there's more dominoes to fall, you know that in itself can be a catalyst. Um, and then you know you, you the, the more I guess the more shorts that are in the market, the less you know underlying spot flows you need to kind of trigger some type of momentum. And then you know you can have you know uh, momentum buyers step in. So I'm not saying that that will happen, but like that's a dynamic that played out that drove the 2019 move from 6K to 14K. And it's something that like I would continue to watch for is the underlying derivatives data. Um, I also think, you know, what essentially you just described, Michael, is you kind of have these like two forces that are pushing against each other. Um, you know, on one hand, you have kind of this macro overhang and, you know, a lot of uh, people probably rightfully so expecting another kind of leg down. Um, because of kind of the broader macro conditions. But then you know, I think also underneath the surface, um, you know, particularly I would say in kind of the, you know, non-Bitcoin uh, crypto specific stuff, um, there's been a lot of developments, you know, at least uh, I, I personally think of kind of going unnoticed. And then also Bitcoin native. I mean, I'm just scrolling through this list that we put together. Fidelity offering Bitcoin and ETH trading, uh, Fidelity offering Bitcoin and retirement accounts, BlackRock announcing Bitcoin support in Aladdin for their private clients. Which, you know, keep in mind, they're not going to do these things if they don't have underlying demand from their clients to do so. Because, you know, they know if they don't offer it, they're going to go to the next place that does. Uh, BNY Mellon offering crypto custody, which is the oldest bank in the United States. Uh, the NASDAQ offering crypto custody. Um, this is another interesting one, I think, that, that maybe wasn't given as much, like, attention as it, it could have been, is Starbucks using uh, NFTs for their crypto rewards program which you know, this. Starbucks and this yeah. is something you guys talked about on the uh, on the bell curve pod is, you know, mm -hmm. Starbucks has the largest rewards program in the world. And the fact that they're now integrating with NFTs, I think that's super interesting. Uh, and then the most recent one was Visa integrating payments um, using Starknet. And so, you know, I think there's there's been a lot of kind of underlying developments going, you know, on underneath the surface. And I think developers kind of had their heads down. Um, and so I think when you think about and also on the Bitcoin side, too, I think there's a lot of kind of infrastructural developments, a lot of that gets overlooked because I think, uh, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin native, you know, uh, ecosystem projects like aren't as sexy. Um, but, you know, I think I just did a report on some of the uh, venture capital investment in, in crypto um, and, and Bitcoin specifically. I did a whole section on that. And, uh, you know, I, I think I think, um, you know, we're really kind of getting the piping and, and plumbing in place for, um, you know, the next kind of bull run. And so I think you kind of have on one hand, kind of the macro forces pushing down on, on, on the entire space. And at the same time, you have this underlying, you know, development. And, and as we kind of described earlier, a lot of the market participants that were tourists are gone. And mm -hmm. so I think that leaves at a minimum the conclusion that, you know, the market will, you know, maybe it's slightly down on the end of the year, but I kind of lean in the camp of at minimum, we'll probably go sideways. I think there's a very low likelihood of another 70, 80%, you know, down year for, for at least Bitcoin and Ethereum. Let's hope. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I agree there. Um, you know, I, I think there's, yeah, there's still the headwinds in the macro picture. Um, the, the infrastructure piece that will, that will refer to is, is really key. I think, you know, that's what we see in these bear markets is that, you know, the piping, the, the infrastructure gets built out. Um, I think honestly, the, uh, the wipeout of, of, you know, really every, every exchange and every firm and every, uh, player that did collapse as as bad as it may be 
is very, very healthy. And honestly, uh, it's probably what we want in terms of, you know, uh, like it would be a disaster, right? If FTX didn't, didn't collapse, if, if they integrated, you know, with us commodities and did all their lobbying efforts and got to 2027 or 2025 or whatever, like, you know what I mean? Like, and, and all of a sudden, instead of 10 billion in deposits, it's, it's 170 billion and they, they have equity futures and, you know, CME, like, like they're a CME competitor, like imagine that. Right. So I think that's, that's kind of how I view it is like, you know, we, we want the fidelities of the world and the, uh, you know, XYZ legacy institution of the world have Bitcoin offerings instead of, you know, the Celsius of the world and, uh, you know, similar companies of the like. So, uh, that, I think that's just what I'm looking for. It's just like the kind of under the surface, uh, under the surface growth, you know, hash rate continuing to chug. Uh, I think the exchange rate at the moment, uh, is probably the least interesting aspect of it. Just considering like there's no volatility. We, we, we know the story. Um, and we, we know like that the USD aspect of this, uh, BTC USD exchange rate is probably the, the preliminary driver for the time being, um, and I think, you know, this is, we're setting the groundwork for whether it's 2024, whether it's the halving, whether it's, you know, the, a change in liquidity cycle. Um, a lot of these things uh, are somewhat hard to predict. It's all probabilistic. Um, but I think, you know, really just kind of laying the, laying the groundwork for uh, kind of the next wave of, of uh, adoption and, and, and kind of the education component. I know that's very cliche, but like even, even among participants in uh in the industry per se, or, uh, you know, people that may or may not have had Bitcoin exposure. Uh, there's, there's just, there's just an education gap of, of what this thing actually is doing. Thousand percent. Uh, you're, you're preaching, you're preaching to the choir. Thank you for allowing me to sell my own book here at the end. But yeah, the education, there's still an enormous amount of work. And honestly, there's a, the anecdote of sailor, you know, educating his board through YouTube videos is like a hysterical, but still rings very true even today, right? I mean, that's like the best way you could educate your board about an entire, you know, $500 million initial buy and pivot in your entire strategy is beyond wild to me as CEO of a public company. So a lot, of, a lot of wood to chop, but also I think that's exciting as well. And also the, if you're like building a business in this space as well, you know, during this period of time, it's not as easy to go out there and find and generate revenue, but it's much let, there's much less noise and you're getting a lot less false signal about ways to like direct your business. And then also, I mean, I'm sure there's an analogy for, for both of you guys as well, but like there are lots of incumbents that decide, oh, we need to have a crypto plane. They throw a whole bunch of money and it's very difficult to compete. And then they, there was never real, any real buy-in. So they all like, you know, pull it back during this period of time. So I mentally categorize these periods of time as like runway, you know, we've got like one and a half years or whatever left to like really sprint and build. Um, before you kind of surf the wave in the bull market. So guys, uh, again, just huge credit to both of you guys. You guys are some of the sharpest analysts in the space. I really appreciate both of you guys coming on. I want to give you both the chance to plug some of the great work that you do. Um, maybe whoever wants to go first, like what's the best way to follow you, find out more about your work. Uh, first off, thanks for having us. This was, uh, it was great to connect uh, big fan of what you guys are building over at, uh, at Blockworks. I, I listened to, to, uh, to this podcast, I listen to, to Jack's podcast. Uh, you guys are putting out some great stuff. Um, as, as in uh, where you can find me, uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm on Twitter at, at Dylan LeClaire underscore, uh, writing some stuff with uh, Bitcoin Magazine Pro. So we'd, we'd cover a lot of this uh, stuff that we talked about, uh, kind of a, a data-driven driven, uh, outlook, but uh, yeah, covering kind of all things Bitcoin and macro. So that's, that's where you can find me. Uh, and yeah, it was just, it was, it was a good chat. 
Yeah, thanks for thanks so much for having us on. Um, you know, we were talking about the informational gap. You know, I think if uh, you and Jason keep doing twenty five different podcasts, then we might uh, be able to close that gap. So, so chugging along, man, you're, you're doing uh, God's work for us all. But yeah, I mean, you can uh, check out reflexivity at reflexivityresearch.com. Um, we cover everything from Bitcoin native stuff, uh, Ethereum, DeFi. We even do a little bit of NFTs sometimes as well. Basically, everything that we feel like you need to know. Uh, about crypto um and yeah uh, we do everything from you know multiple reports every week we do weekly analyst calls and we also have recently done some collaboration uh with blockworks as well we have a uh, upcoming i don't know when this will get uploaded but we have Love a it. this is gonna go live tomorrow so Not we should plug this actually at 5 p.m today if you're listening right it'll be uh you guys got the spaces absolutely phenomenal guys thank you so much for coming on the show it's been a pleasure talking to both of you we'll have to do it again sometime soon cheers cheers y'all thanks gents 